BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. Three hundred years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombie Land. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is. It just is. Especially with the audio version of AB Live. This one, episode 56. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. In the beginning, God went crazy and became us. For Sanity Restored, visionary artist and author Lawrence Gadwana took us to the scene of the crime. The Gnostic creation myth. More than a crime, it's an evocative, immersive, and beautiful tale of consciousness first becoming aware, and the adventures of the Aeon Sophia down a cosmic rabbit hole. Beyond that, we covered breathtaking ground on the history and theology of Gnosticism and Lawrence's future plans for a Gnostic chapel based on the secret book of John in France will blow you away. 
There were some tech archons for about five to eight minutes during the interview. But then Lawrence chased away the gremlins inside his computer and the rest was smooth sailing. So don't panic during that scratchy period at around minute 25 or so. As a bonus for Patreon patrons, Red Circle subscribers and AB Prime members, I'll include my interview with Lawrence on his book, Enter the Image, where he discusses that mystic nexus of art, myth, and mysticism. Don't miss it as you'll find useful meditative and spiritual plugins to your practices. I'm so grateful to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. And I hope I have served you well. Your support and company keep me going. Don't forget the Finding Hermes program and my voiceover availability. Whether it's an audiobook, commercial, podcast, or documentary, or even video game, I can bring stellar results to your project. Keep in mind you can now tip via Stripe, since many of you use it, found in the show notes of any audio podcast. We need Gnosis more than ever. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guess and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Let us to our latest AB Live and keep writing your own gospel and living your own myth. And we are live. Welcome, everybody, to, yes, AB Live. Great to see everybody already pouring into the, the chat room on YouTube, Facebook, and so forth. Um, some of you might be noticing, those of you who are watching the live video, that I switched out the song for the intro. If you want to know why, it's because I got dinged by YouTube after spending a, a week in YouTube jail. Then YouTube decided to give me a strike over my the other introduction with a song that I had ran it through all these copyright machines and whatever. It was completely copyright, for, but they decided no, 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 no. So YouTube, the Archons are definitely after me in many ways. So I put a new uh, song and a little bit of uh, Peter Sellers and the party because you guys know I love Peter Sellers and I love the party. But anyway, enough of that. Uh, Great to see everybody again, and uh, the topic, uh, well, we can never go wrong when it comes to Sophia and Gnostic cosmology, and our guest is somebody who has been a great friend, an advocate, an explainer of Gnostic ideas, philosophy, the aesthetic of Gnosticism, and uh, really an amazing mind uh, behind such books that I, I have on my bookshelf. I always go back to when I need resources, uh, books like Sacred Codes, Hidden Passion, and Enter Through the Mish, through, enter, enter, enter Through the Image. Yes, I'm getting tongue-tied over here trying to talk about the Gospel of Philip, but, and that is visionary artist, and again, great uh, friend of the Gnostics, and that is Lawrence Caruana. Lawrence, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Great to have you as always. 
Thank you so much, Miguel. Awesome. Awesome. And with us, too, we have another great friend of the Gnostics and Sophia and Alethea, too. And that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm fine this morning. I had my own birdie and um session with birdie uh, be just before the show. <laughs> I feed my bird. So uh, ready to go. Always love this divine feminine subject. So here we go. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And uh, I love Lawrence. Um, I was been watching your, uh, your uh, presentations on YouTube that you did on the Gnostic worldview and alchemy. And those are incredible. And, very popular too your gnostic worldview one has like eighty thousand hits did you think it would be this mm -hmm. that popular i mean you're just doing it at the academy weren't you just uh mm -hmm. as part of the part of your lectures of course i'm i'm really pleased on the other hand i've been trying to get that video filmed for at least five years and you know the techno archons always managed to intervene and we filmed it at least three times and this was the third time and finally we made it, we edited it together and it was needed. Uh, I hate to say it, but uh, when you search out Gnosticism on YouTube uh, videos, there's not a lot there that is cohesive in presentation of Gnosticism. It kind of goes all over the place, which might be expected for Gnosticism. But I think it was needed. I think a, a general video that kind of gives the story of the Gnostic worldview was something that was needed, and I'm happy that I was able to fill that, that need uh, through this work. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I would say for the audience, check it out because it's a good hour and a half, two hours, and it's split into three. You could do a good introduction. I don't know how you did it, but in 40 minutes, we get a good historical overview of Gnosticism. Then you go to the creation myths. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it was needed, and it has, uh, again, a lot of views. I think I have a few videos that are in the 80 to 100,000, but I've been doing this for a long time. I have a lot of content on different mm -hmm. things. So uh, I think you're 100% right. It's hard for somebody just to go, I just need a good linear overview of Gnosticism that works. And I know we've talked a lot about this before. We've, we've brought it up, Lawrence, but uh, since it's been a while since you have graced the virtual Alexandria, how did you become interested in Gnosticism? I know you were talking in your presentation, the Gnostic worldview, how you were you were in your early 20s and you read the Gospel of Philip and that was a spark? Yeah, we kind of forget. Yeah, that uh, it would have to go back to around 1976 or so. So this is when the first paperback mass market versions of the Nag Hammadi texts were actually being published. And it was really something quite new back then. So I remember picking up the uh, Nag Hammadi library by, edited by James Robinson and going through it, I'm primarily a painter. And as a painter, I was looking for uh, a version of Christianity that was moving into the broader spectrum of what Christianity is. And honestly, I found it almost incomprehensible, but I took away a few gems, you know. I took away exactly uh, this quote from the Gospel of Philip, uh, enter through the image. And it was something which intrigued me. I just 
copied it out on a piece of paper and put it over my easel, enter through the image, and wasn't quite sure what it meant, but revealed itself to me over time. And, and I think I could say that with almost all anoptic texts that they have doorways in and you, you discover a phrase, a sentence, a paragraph, something that grabs you and intrigues you. And then as you start to follow it deeper and deeper and you, it kind of becomes a place for lots of rabbit holes, you know, a place where you can go left and go right and make connections because of this odd language that they have where you have to connect this idea with that idea until you start to piece it all together. And I'm really still in that process of trying to piece this massive uh, thing called Gnosticism together in my head, you know. Uh, I think the lecture I gave um, at the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art, which is now on YouTube, my latest attempt to summarize it in such a way that I could say, ah, okay, I think I understand now that basically here's the creation, here's what happens during the time of Christ, and here's what happens afterwards and after we die, and this is kind of Gnostic worldview. But it's, it's really an ongoing process, and as I hope to show you during this next couple of hours that uh, I'm going deeper and deeper as part of my life projects to to create uh gnostic paintings and gnostic chapel and so on so wonderful wonderful and yeah i think uh you hit it on the head or it's a good point to bring up that many of these traditions from hinduism to buddhism to christianity have had thousands of years for exegesis and commentary it's really the late 70s before you finally get uh, some fuel on the fire of Gnosticism with the Nag Hammadi Library. So we have just started truly understanding it. And I also, like I tell people, to uh, you're never going to get really a, um, a 10 steps for salvation or 10 steps from Gnosis. I think as June Singer said, Gnosis speaks to us differently. It was a very individualistic uh, movement and it had small lodges where you'd have like the ancient traditions of uh, Egypt. You had a hierophant, a guy playing the Hermes who would get his audience worked up and teach him and get him into an altered state of mind. But then you had another lodge that was different. I mean, uh, uh, so it's exciting, but if people are looking for some sort of linear answer or structured way, uh, you, Lawrence, you don't think they're going to find it in Gnosticism. <laughs> um, and uh so go ahead. yeah so i was just going to add that uh exactly i also came from a tradition where uh i had a christian or catholic background but had started to like many people look into other sacred traditions like buddhism and hinduism but also ancient egypt and tribal and even mind societies, and each one has its ex value, is extremely valuable. And then the question arises in our mind, how does it all fit together? How can Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, ancient Egypt, how can these start to mesh? And I think that uh, in Alexandria, in the first century of our era, something very similar was happening, which is the birthplace of Gnosticism. And that the people who lived there and probably 
the source of Gnostic texts is around Alexandria. We don't know for sure. Uh, we're very much combining Judaism, early Christianity, ancient Egyptian beliefs, but also a whole series of other uh, fields which I've been researching on my own. And uh, those fields that I'm thinking of are, are for example, theurgy, which people not, might not be familiar with, but uh, Ian Blickus, his book on the mysteries, is also from this same time period and covering a lot of the same territory as the Gnostic texts. And then you have the Greek magical papyri, for example. You have alchemical texts, like from those of Zosimus, who himself was from Alexandria. These all start to overlap each other and use the same vocabulary, uh, Neoplatonism as well. So this idea of the one, the divine one. And as you kind of branch out from Gnosticism, you can go so far as to go into India and Tibet. But if you just keep it within that area of northern Egypt and Alexandria, you're already discovering a whole series of parallel pursuits with Gnosticism. That's what I mean by alchemy, theurgy, Neoplatonism, and so forth. And... Uh, Already there, I'm enriching my knowledge of Gnosticism just by reading those texts and discovering more and more about the whole process of, of where those people were coming from, what their milieu was, and how they were thinking in that time period. Yeah, I, as uh, David Brackey said on the show, Gnosis is the one thing that's not... Uh, exclusive of Gnosticism. I mean, those, like you said, in Alexandria, the Neoplatonists, the Hermeticists, even you can say some of the Merkabah Jews, they were into this. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't, as April DeConnick said, it's not mysticism because you're not passive to some god. You're actually taking these flights, these visionary flights, and perhaps you're going inside, but perhaps it's an, it's an altered state of mind. Perhaps it's out of body. It's kind of like the same thing, really, when you think about the microcosm and microcosm of man. But you mm -hmm. are actively going to, you might say, hunt for the one, the ground of being, the supreme consciousness, the, the big bang of awareness, and you are there to stand in front of it. And whatever you come back with, you know, is going to be it's going to look a little different to every person because we still have to bring this information into our meat sacks and decipher it. So you have all these different. So what an amazing time you think in Alexandria when these figures decided we are going to go right to the to the source of everything and we're not just going to sit around, rely on faith or wait to have a, a an awakening or anything. We're we're aggressive. We're like hunters. We're gnosis hunters. <laughs> And this idea of the one, which uh, I first came across in Neoplatonism through Platonis. And mm -hmm. of course, I was given the word God all the time during my upbringing and God the Father. And you have a very clear picture of this old man with the beard and so on. <laughs> one, the one, it, suddenly you either are in on that understanding of divinity as a oneness or a unity or you're not and it's so surprising <laughs> to see so many figures in alexandria in this time period simply referring to oneness and it's it's a, a word or an experience that has come back to us in our culture in the last let's say 20 30 years 
which again creates these tribes of people who who feel that they themselves are looking for the others who understand or have experienced what oneness is and and sharing that experience of divinity which as you say is mystical visionary experiential uh gnostic this idea of knowing for oneself knowing through experience what a divinity is i think that that's what so many people are latching onto and and identifying with is saying that i have the inner spark of light and i have this which allows me to get in contact with the divine directly rather than say through this text or through that uh, tradition and so on so yeah and the visionary experience which of course we can go into because uh, uh, that's a big part of my artistic approach and literary approach to things yeah we discussed it uh, well and we hope to uh, definitely cover it here uh, visionary art in your book sacred codes uh so I guess my next question is, yeah, Alexandria, what was going on there that sparked these amazing occultists? Uh, do you think, um, I don't know how to phrase this, in your book, Sacred Codes, you definitely talk about the Egyptian uh, vibe that the Egyptians were, you show proof of the Egyptians having these out of body or after death, like you say, these texts will not only help you in this life, but when you die, you'll get sort of a roadmap to make sure you don't get stuck in the Ouroboros. Mm. But you show that the Egyptians mm. had this. So do you think it, the Gnosticism is pre-Christian and directly mainlines Egyptian mysteries? I mean, it's no secret that the Greek philosophers said that, you know, Plato and all, they had to go to Egypt to be initiated for a true... Mm consciousness expansion so uh, do you think that's what these groups really were mainlining or tapping in at the end of the day yeah i think that the egyptian influence on gnosticism is something which uh, scholars have not covered very deeply so far and probably because most of them are biblical scholars that's their area of specialty they might right. go as far as early Greek philosophy like Plato and the pre-Socratics. But once you get into Egypt and Egyptology and the study of Egyptology, it's like another domain. And there are a few Egyptologists. Now, this is where itself becomes difficult because in the study of Egypt and Egyptology, there are the hardline archaeologists who say that we cannot comment on what the texts mean. But then there's a school from Switzerland, and the one I'm thinking of is Eric Hornung, who has done a lot of work in looking at the ancient Egyptian books of the afterlife and trying to really bring them to the public. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about, uh, you know, Alexandria is in the north of Egypt, uh, where the Nile flows into the Mediterranean. But halfway down the Nile around Thebes is uh, Luxor and Thebes on the opposite side of the Nile River. You go west and you go deeper into the desert and that's where the Valley of the Kings is. And the Valley of the Kings where the pharaohs were buried. And I've been there and it's really fascinating. I hope that once in your lifetime you can go. 
And uh, you basically enter into the tombs of the pharaohs. And if you're prepared, and I was prepared in the sense that I, I had this book with me. This is, uh, <laughs> let's see if I can hold it up, Eric Hornung's uh, The Ancient Egyptian Books of the Afterlife. Mm. And he will basically lay out in diagrammatic form what you will see on the walls of the tombs, you know, so so carved on the walls of the tombs, you actually see these kind of images, and now you can find them on the internet, of um, the boat journey of Ra, or Ray, the sun god, through the netherworld. <clears throat> and so as the sun sets in the west, it goes under, or it's not quite clear, but into the netherworld, and it passes through 12 gateways which are the 12 hours of the night and re-emerges on the other side and during this time the sun illuminates those underground passages and also reunites with the corpse of osiris and those souls who have died accompany the solar bark on this underworld journey only to hopefully dawn uh, to rise up at the end of this boat journey as a solarized spirit, as someone who will then, with the boat of Ra, participate in the afterlife. And they are quite clear when you start to study and read these texts. And again, it's not simple because uh, you're just given image after image after image with names. And fortunately, we've been able to translate the hieroglyphs as of Champollion in the uh, late 1700s. So we can read what the name hieroglyphic names are, and it's just name after name after name, being after being after being. It gets a bit tiresome and confusing, <laughs> but so do the Gnostic texts, you know? It, it just seems to be long lists of these, of these figures. But once you know the Gnostic texts, and once you start to read the Egyptian books of the afterlife, you start to see parallel after parallel after parallel, and you say to yourself, ah, this little motif over here, it also shows up in the Nag Hammadi texts, you know. So just to give one example, uh, one of the, I told you about the 12 gateways, and so one of the guardians of the second gateway is the uh, ass or donkey-faced god. And you know, it kind of sticks in my head because I never imagined an ass or a donkey face to be terribly malevolent. You know, why would this be so fearful? And yet here he is in this ancient Egyptian book of the afterlife, the Amduat, as this fearful figure that the sun has to overcome or else he'll be caught forever in the after the afterworld in another world. And the uh, archons, as you probably know, are listed in the Apocryphon of John, and one of the archons is also this donkey-faced god. So, mm -hmm. so this whole motif or mythology of the soul's journey through the afterlife being a step-by-step -step process, and uh, it gets translated from this kind of horizontal boat journey in Egyptian mythology to this vertical ascent in the Gnostic world view where, you're, where your departed soul is trying to pass through the seven layers of the cosmos that is the seven planets, the visible planets. And uh, the reason why the Apocryphon of John lists them as actually 12, and this is now my interpretation, is that 
the body is probably the first five layers. So the body being earth, water, air, fire, and possibly the ether. So as you die, your body dissolves. And as your body dissolves, you lose earth, you lose water, you lose air, you lose mm -hmm. fire, and these different bodies or layers of yourself dissolve. And that is the passage through the first five gateways. And then you pass through the moon and Venus, uh, sorry, the moon, uh, let's take it in the order that they use. So it would be moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And you pass through each of those seven gateways, which have their archontic names in the Gnostic tradition. So that though that is the 12 layers, the vertical layers of the cosmos, which, so now we've taken that Egyptian model going horizontally through the gates and turning it vertically and, and there you are. And then you move into the realm of the fixed stars. And the realm of the fixed stars is interesting because you come across so many different references from Plato, from again, Theurgy and Ian Blickus and, and from Gnosticism that we ourselves are sparks of light and that the stars are, are like, we have our star in the heavens that from whence we came and to which we return. And so we have our cosmic home, so to speak, uh, in the realm of the fixed stars. So I, I could kind of go on and on, but that is what fascinates me is finding that, um, and this is just one example of how Egyptian mythology or religion, the Egyptian tradition must have influenced Gnosticism. And let's not forget that the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered, uh, that they were possibly written in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, discovered in Nag Hammadi, which is in Egypt. And there's a reason for that also, is that the climate of Egypt tends to preserve the papyrus on which things are written. But uh, I don't doubt that uh, the Egyptian priests who were suffering under the Greeks, when the Greeks overran Egypt during the Ptolemaic period, uh, Alexander the Great, and so on. They were suffering, and they were, at the same time, trying to hold on to their traditions, trying to translate their traditions into Greek, into the Greek worldview, the Greek language, while uh, not divulging all the secrets that they possessed. You know, they, they had a hard time because they were priests coming from a tradition of 2,000 to 3,000 years. And mm. now they were witnessing that tradition fall away, die, be destroyed. And as much as they tried to hold on to it as a secret or as a mystery, they had to translate into existing culture, which would have been Judaism, Christianity, and uh, the other movements that were there in a place like Alexandria, hence the Gnostics. Wow, that was really well said. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think you're 100% right. I mean, we can talk about how the Demiurge, the representation of the Demiurge these in the ancient coins is taken from the the fierce Egyptian god Chernubis. And they, April DeConic mm -hmm. and the Gnostic New Age does an excellent job showing how the, the myth of Atum, the great snake, the first really representation of the Ouroboros who closes in and this guy inseminates his own mouth 
and it, it, it's a great parallel. You don't find this in Hellenistic religion, but it's a great parallel to the invisible spirit peering into bar below, and she produces these gods just as a tomb when he has when he inseminates himself or reproduces with himself. He's the great hermaphrodite serpent. He gives birth to the Egyptian gods. So um, mm -hmm. it's all there, and uh, I don't. I don't know if you've heard this theory that the Nag Hammadi library might not be uh, the the James Robinson uh, reconstruction that it was these brave monks hiding, um, well, heretical texts and might not be true, but it was actually the Nag Hammadi was a funerary text for people. Exactly. Yeah, that April Deconic, at least I became aware of that through April Deconic in her book, uh, Oh, what's it called? Uh, the Gnostics as a countercultural movement. Yeah, the Gnostic uh, you know, New the Age. Kind of, the Gnostic New Age, exactly. And when I read that, suddenly lights went off at uh, her suggestion that, uh, and, and very little mention is made of this, that there was a body found with the texts that so it was actually burial texts, as you're saying. And we know this tradition which comes again from ancient Egypt, that the books of the afterlife were buried even coffins themselves had the book of the afterlife carved or drawn onto the, them as their vessel. So that you were given these books uh, to, to hold on to, to give you knowledge or, or read your way through the afterlife journey, yeah, to, to your, I, I guess the idea being that your spirit and the spirit of the text itself, words would all kind of be available in this non-material realm that you're entering into uh, after death. And so the fact that this whole Nakamadi library was possibly there as a funerary text, that blew my mind because it changes our interpretation radically of what the purpose of the text was. And, and yeah, most likely it was the guide to the afterlife journey, which, which is something that myself, I've been looking deeper and deeper into that tradition. Uh, I've, uh, that you would have texts, of course, but you also need images because images are more easy to remember and uh, this brings us into the area of mandalas for example and how tibetan tradition i talk about this in sacred codes that uh, monks, buddhist monks in the mahayana tradition they memorize the entire mandala structure which can get very very complex like 32 deities arranged in the mandala which itself is a kind of a step pyramid. And so at the very top of the step pyramid, you have the couple joining. And then they're surrounded by four deities who are surrounded by another four, eight deities. And, and these are actually consorts, you know, that they're, so this relates to Gnosticism as well. And so these 32, and then it's surrounded by a ring of, earth, air, water, fire as a protective ring, as well as these protective deities. Uh, and so this entire mandala is memorized by the monk and both of the cosmos and themselves, you know, as above, so below. And uh, when I say as themselves, it's themselves in both their corporeal 
soulful and spiritual makeup. And of course, a mandala makes sense because mandala is something that you can hold together in your mind. And at the same time, it even becomes a deal. This is where now I'm going to change channels and jump into theory and Ian Lucas and this tradition, which also is contemporary with Gnosticism, because we talk a lot about the same thing. We talk about the necessity of having a vehicle for these spirit journeys that they undertake. And the vehicle is this metal construct that protects you because it orients you. You, you, you. As you go through the realm of visions and the realm where you are no longer embodied, you need to construct a kind of a body to, to uh, keep yourself together and move through the visionary realm. And so that was the purpose of the Buddha mandala. When you read a text like uh, the Apocryphon of John, uh, now, a very corrupt text, but uh, you can see that you're trying to arrange these 12 archons and 12 uh, aeons on Christ. And, and 12 aeons around Christ, this is again, a, can be arranged as a mandala. And the 12 aeons around Christ, you include all these uh, mental states, you know, we have to say. Uh, memory and understanding and ideas, but also uh, the more positive emotional states of peace and uh, love. So that you need to have all of these inner vehicles, so to speak, you know, to move through uh, the, those different realms that are represented by different archontic beings and so on in the afterlife journey. It's your boat. You know, coming back to the Egyptian books of the afterlife, you know, there's Ra, who is the sun, who is luminous. And Ra is on a boat, you know, with deities on the boat itself. There's usually eight deities on the boat, including Truth, Mat. You know, she, this goddess of Egypt with the feather in her head, uh, Truth is one of the most important figures on the vehicle because you know as the sun illuminates the sun wants to illuminate not illusion truth and so, you know his light passes hey, lawrence lawrence i need to so, interrupt you yeah you're getting a bit choppy uh the only thing uh, could you turn okay. off your video that might give you more juice okay i'm sorry uh let me just check something here because you know every so often something gets turned on that i want to make sure it's turned off okay yeah. Uh, For the audience, uh, yeah. Lawrence is in the countryside in France, so he's not getting Comcast. Apologies. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's okay. It, it, it definitely it it happens. <laughs> We're used to it. Yeah. So you want me to turn off my video for a moment, or well, now uh, it sounds good. Oh, yeah, it sounds good, doesn't he, Vance? Yeah. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's possible that uh, I. Turned off my backup, but it turned itself back on. I automatically back up files, and so I turned it off again, and hopefully that might work. I'm just yeah, going to turn off a few more things just to make sure. Yeah. 
but my apologies for that. Uh, I was really getting into my explanation. From Egypt, Mandalan. Yeah, I think for those of you who uh, read the Gnostic texts and you read, yeah, you're reading the secret book of John or the Nessenes, and you're going, what are these guys? What drugs are these guys on? And they, they might, probably were on some entheogen, but think of these as mandalas, the structure of the brain, the structure of the brain, the mind of God, and meditate them. So these can be, these stuff is living well, and it can be useful, right, Lawrence? Yeah. What I find funny is that when you read the Gnostic texts, you know, they're, they're fragmented and you're reading a sentence and suddenly you miss three <laughs> or four words and then it continues. And the same thing happens in the 21st century, except now it's the internet connection that's, you know, removing fragments from from <laughs> we got lacuna in our interview yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah okay so how is the connection now am i still disappearing smooth. or am i present smooth right now you're Smoother? back smooth okay, yeah great. something we asked i think something right, it must have been that draining. yeah thank yeah, you yeah, for and, um, pointing that out oh no problem no problem um and for the i mean when people say it was gnosticism earlier than christianity i always say well it's kind of a straw man because it, there's no breakup it's it's a continuation don't you think it's like there were these egyptian mysteries they were probably starting to fade because of the greco-roman world and serapis and other gods were moving in and the, it, there were just people were just losing interest in this primordial uh, faith, like you said, this experiential, shamanistic, visionary, out of body faith. And there were those in Alexandria who simply they didn't let it die; they just continued with it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and, and uh, it's what the church is missing when mm -hmm. when the church then took over Christianity and. The same could be said with the temple tradition in Judaism, that uh, suddenly they simplified it all down to something very moralistic in Christianity. It's you will be judged on your good actions and your bad actions, not what you know, not what you've experienced, what you know, but rather what you've done and whether that is within the moralistic code uh, that they've laid down within the church. And, oh, and you have these balances of good and evil. And if, you know, you did more evil than good, you go to hell. Or if you did more good than evil, you go to heaven. Very simplistic explanation of what happens in the afterlife. And obviously, what we're getting from these other traditions, who, which are visionary, is probably people who have had visions and interpreted those visions as mm, this is information about the afterlife journey and as they uh, start to really explore the territory of these visions they start to realize that there are consistencies and and like a geography if you want and they start to put together the geography which happens to uh, then mesh with the whole cosmic framework that they're in the process of uh, understanding at the same time. So it, it definitely uh, is like a science of the age, but a science that that is trying to understand not just the world that we perceive, but the world that we in, uh, access through visions, and that is the afterlife world and so on, you know, the, the higher heavenly world. 
Agreed. And yeah, for the audience, as somebody once told me, the Egyptians were not obsessed with death. They were obsessed with eternity. <laughs> that was their big thrust. <laughs> that was why they, that's where they spent every minute worrying about and tweaking and creating that spiritual tech to really connect us mm. with eternity, with a continuity that is existence, that is consciousness. So it's, uh, yeah. And we, we lost it, but uh, it has been carried throughout the centuries. And uh, Vance, any questions from you or the audience? I think I saw somebody come in and say that all three of us were going to hell. But, oh, really? Uh, I then, yeah, that. yeah, I, I saw that. I said, but I'm like, you don't ask that to a Gnostic because he's just going to say, we are in hell, man. We are in hell. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> it's a state of mind, brother. <laughs> well, um, yeah, here's one for Lawrence. Uh, while while you were uh, while you were talking, I had the idea well, that we're um, uh, we always talk as if we have like one unified time frame, and we're all little actors within a big universe. Um, what about the idea that actually each of us is a individual journey of the one through a kind of formulated universe and we're actually not in the same universe even though our avatars appear in many universes and we can see each other's avatars but the that the one is really always the one and wherever it's looking from that's all there is yeah it's kind of a multiverse and if kind you if you enter the visionary realm sometimes you you come across these places where there seem to be thousands of beings with eyes gazing at each other and the question then becomes uh are these unified is it a unified consciousness or is it a disunified and separated consciousness so uh hell seems to be one of those places <laughs> where the the disunity exists and everything is is fighting you know the demons are fighting the fallen souls and they're tearing them apart and and there's this this struggle whereas uh the heavenly realm then you have the many but the many see each other and they see each other as reflections of themselves and so as you see each other as a reflection of you know you you realize i am you you are me and so we don't fall into separation we fall into oneness and unity so i understand vance how you you have this idea that you want to preserve the sense of identity somehow and I don't think we have to fear the loss of um, identity or our uniqueness in this higher realm, what's called the upper eons in, in the Gnostic worldview. I think that we maintain our sense of identity, but at the same time, we can celebrate our uniqueness. And uh, the one is celebrating the uniqueness of its multiplicity. Uh, uh, it can celebrate how its multiplicity is just a vast uh, varied reflection of itself so that uh, you are, Miguel is, I am, we all are differing reflections of the same thing. So there's difference and there's sameness at the same time. And uh, it, it's a strange way to think, but uh, I've actually discovered this uh, by reading Plato quite deeply is Plato had a form of thinking which 
is I call the logic of uh, the logic of sameness and difference, where we tend to think always in terms of difference to classify things. But at the same time, we can also think in similarities to bring things back together. And the logic of similarity and difference seeks out the similarities as well as the differences between things. Yeah. It's, it's, if I give you a very concrete example, uh, in alchemy, it's used all the time because, say, fire and water are pushed apart as separate, that, that fire is uh, cold, sorry, fire is hot and dry, water is cold and moist, and yet they share similarities at the same time because through air and earth, they unify with each other and they start to to find ways to relate to each other. They're not just opposites, but they're, they integrate back into each other as opposites. I'm a bit abstruse, I think, in my explanation of things. But uh, similarity and difference allows us to find new ways to think through things so that we arrive not just at difference, but also at you know oneness and similarity. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> the deep yeah. subject. <clears throat> yeah, for, yeah, for the record, yeah. uh, it's like I'm, I'm not um, saying that in the context of clinging on to the Moondog or Vance uh, identity, um, but in my meditations, when I strip away everything that's important, like it's not important for me to know how to get to the corner grocery store or how to play the piano or whatever, um, uh, after, after you know the Vance creature's gone, Really, I'm left with even the importance of seeing through the kind of eyes that we have, right? Like birds can see you know, almost all around them and so forth. Um, I, I'm left with pure being and potential, and that's as close to the one, you know, as as, <clears throat> as I think I can. Uh, uh, so it, there, there is a, like a pure being that can, you know, can emanate into all these things. And isn't that the basis of all the Gnostic cosmologies? Right, the one always starts Absolutely. out with the one and it emanates. So, um, mm. yeah, that that's 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 and, kind of where where I was coming from. And consciousness and self awareness, which we all possess as well. Yeah, so that that simple act of consciousness, uh, which is both consciousness and self consciousness, seems to be the the what we all share what it what unifies us yeah and even though you are self-aware of yourself as vance and i'm self-aware of myself as lawrence we still share this this primordial spark this light of of, of consciousness and self-consciousness oh here we are you find men are not Say that again. You yeah. yeah, you yeah, find men school. are not going are not going to hell. <laughs> hell is already on earth. There you go. On earth, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Even Origin said also this is the yeah. highest plane of hell. So, <laughs> so it's not a bad plane of hell. Awesome. Well, great question. Um, I was. Do you want to start the presentation? I was going to ask you next about Sophia, our favorite heroine, or perhaps villain, or uh, anti-heroine, anti perhaps? Or do you want to touch upon this mm -hmm. during the presentation, Lawrence? I, I don't really have a specific presentation on Sophia. Um, I did prepare some images <laughs> for my upcoming project of, of creating a chapel uh on the apocryphon of john so we could do that later but uh wow. in terms of sophia yeah. i'm very much open to 
answering questions or discussing who she might possibly be. And it's an endless question in a way that uh, I, I would just begin by saying that Sophia in the Gnostic tradition is the turning point. Yeah, that uh, we begin, I'm thinking now to the Apocryphon of John or the secret book of John, which is mm -hmm. one of the primary texts, but right. in the Gnostic world view in general, we begin with this one, which is self-consciousness. And as consciousness or mind, it expands through a series of eons. And all of these are reflections of itself. And so even though it's multiple, they're unified because each one, it could be uh, Christ or the four lights or Anoya, they're, they're all named in the Apocryphon of John. Each one is a reflection until we arrive at Sophia. And then Sophia becomes the break. Now, that break out of unified self-consciousness is a fascinating, questionable thing. And how does it happen? And I think different Gnostic texts give different interpretations of what happened. Um, the one that kind of fascinates me is this idea that uh, she tried to see and understand the one, but her thinking kept on reaching further and further and further out and could not encompass or fully see the one and reached a limit called horos in Greek. And this limit then uh, created ignorance. And so she had no choice but to reach the point at which self-knowledge has to be bounded by something. And what self-knowledge is bounded by is ignorance of itself. And, and I think it's something that we can experience in our own selves in the sense that, you know, I asked you, Miguel, do you know yourself? And you would say, yes, of course I know yourself, but to what extent, you know? And then we come up to this idea of 20th century psychology that there is the unconscious, there is those boundaries to consciousness and beyond the boundary of consciousness is the, the unconscious. And so what is the unconscious? Well, it's this dark, area like dreams that don't have a rational fully structured way of presenting themselves they lack clarity and form and if they have form the form is very uh, we can say bestial or so on and, th and this brings us then to what happened to Sophia is Sophia creates unwittingly creates Yalta Baos and Yalta Baal, why a lion-faced serpent? And we talked about Yalta Baal and you gave, you know, the, this, this image of the lion-faced serpent shows up again and again in the Alexandrian world. And you can find it in the Greek magical papyri, for example, in ancient Egypt. Um, I'm going to take a much more psychological approach and just say that the serpent and the lion. To me, the serpent is really that aspect of ignorance or 
unconsciousness in ourselves that is pure desire to either uh, progenerate, to, to reproduce ourselves, or to eliminate the other. You know, if you have two serpents come face to face, if one is male and the other one is male, they will try to destroy each other. If one is male and the other is female, they will come together to create another. That's the serpent, and that's the serpent in us. We wish to either devour the other or we wish to join with the other and, and reproduce ourselves. And it's, it's a very, it's so unconscious in us, it's so primal that we can barely, we can't even control it in ourselves. It's such a basic need. So I think that's one aspect that Yalta Baoth is representing, created by Sophia, yeah? And the other mm -hmm. being the lion. And the lion is that element of pride. You know, if you study the lion, it is ferocious. And so it is in the language of psychology, ego, but ego in the sense of I, me, you know, that I see my world and my consciousness is my consciousness of my world and I wish to control everything within my reach. Um, Sophia herself, something else happens, and this is from now Irenaeus. If you read his uh, version of, of the Sethian Gnosticism in Against All Heresies, he said that when Sophia reached the, the limit, she suffered passion. She suffered all sorts of trauma and passion. And, and that makes a lot of sense too. In other words, when you, when you try to know yourself and your self-consciousness expands as far as it possibly can and then reaches the limit, you suffer trauma. You suffer uh, all the different passions that may emerge. And I think this is what Sophia gave to the cosmos, in a way, is Sophia gave the creation, you know, because we're talking about the process of the creation. And uh, she then created the passions, she created Yalta Bath, and she created the material world. That is another interesting thing, which is worth discussing. So up until this point, you have the upper eons, and the upper eons, the mind, is all purely spiritual. There's no uh, material realm as of yet. Now, uh, if you understand Aristotle, and Aristotle plays a large role in the Naghama, in, in the Apocryphon of John. His thinking permeates the Apocryphon of John. He has this idea of hylomorphism, which is to say that creation of male and female is that the male, this is Aristotle, it's not me, the male provides the shape, which is the, uh, the morph, morphe, okay? The, the form or the shape is the morphe. And the female provides the matter, which is the hyle. And so when the male and female come together, basically the male stamps his shape or form onto the female's matter. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened in the Apocryphon of John is that Sophia was supposed to mate with another, that as a consort, she was supposed to gain the consent of her consort, come together male and female and create, but she didn't. She created on her own. 
and what she created, the Apocryphon is very clear, is, is without form, or it was misshapen, they say. And that's Yaltabao, this misshapen thing. And they even called it like an abortion and, and so on. So that the material world, which she accidentally creates, the material world is this misshapen or unshapen mass or matter, you know. And uh, it, it really feels like, say, the, the prima materia in the alchemical tradition, this, this, you know, this matter be, before it has any shape or form. And uh, I think this is really the fundamental role that Sophia plays within the whole Gnostic tradition is that she's accidentally uh, creating the material world. And the material world is the place of ignorance, you know, that we don't, we are trapped within the material world. We're trapped within Yalta Baoth in the sense of sexual desire and, and desire to conquer others and so on, fulfilling our needs. And, uh, and so, you know, this is, a, this is where we find ourselves. And so we find ourselves in need of redemption, just as Sophia herself is in need of redemption and, and uh, the creation that she made is in need of redemption. And fortunately, Gnosticism then does offer, you know, the, the uh, solution to how to escape from this place of darkness, or as we said, hell, you know, that we are already in a form of a multi-layered cosmic <laughs> hell that, that is uh, seven planetary layers deep, you know, that uh, ruled over by Yalta Baoth, who, by the way, is also time, you know, it's worth mentioning mm -hmm. that, that the serpent with this tail in his mouth, it, it becomes an image then of, of time that we are trapped within time so yeah i i hope that little spiel didn't have too many lacunae and uh that was good yeah you got yeah how to describe yeah no that's a wonderful yeah i would be curious though like uh miguel you've been doing this program for you know, many years, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you might have an insight into Sophia that I lack, or, uh, you know, well, have you managed to? I've written about the many ways you can do. I think that's why Sophia is so fascinating to individuals, because there's many entry points, many versions. She's almost like a koan. I mean, obviously, wisdom is wisdom. Why it was inevitable that wisdom was going to rebel, that she was going to be a Luciferian like Prometheus and other gods, because wisdom has to know and wisdom has to go through things to become self actualized. If you meet a wise person, they've gone through a lot and they've probably done a lot of shitty pe things to other people. That's how you get wise and get through the other side. So it was almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she's the great, uh, she's a, a, that Luciferian trickster archetype. She's the great uh, metaphor of the fall of the soul into matter, whether it's Helen of Troy, Alice in Wonderland, Dorothy in The Wizard of, or just Plato's soul. It's a female force that falls into the chaos and gives it shape. Um, now, there's so many of those that I've written on my blog and talked about on the show, and we can get into the idea of the, you know, 
the Jew, the Hebrews had the idea of the fallen Shekinah, that the wisdom lost in the world that you find in the Old Testament. So does the book of Enoch, where wisdom is hiding mm. from humanity in a cloud. Um, there's this, and mm. this idea was there. And of course, you, then you get into the primordial God is like Ashira and Anna. Again, the, the goddess that goes into the chthonic worlds for some trial or tribulation. So now we're getting into myths and archetypes. We're getting into... Mm places that we still haven't invented a good language for that's why artists like you do a good job of putting it in art because i think that's how we can experience we don't have still don't have the language to really understand the power of sophia so that's some of my uh my takes on so and it should be also uh, noted to lawrence and you mentioned this too but in the valentinian system the what irenaeus talks about uh, yeah sophia falls out of the border of the Horus into the into the chaos and then gives birth that you know this universe is her shame her passion her, her the release of her her liquids as she's freaking out and you know falling maybe for billions of years if you want to talk science fiction and she gives birth to the demiurge and all that but in the secret book of John it should be mentioned as soon as she has that thought she has yelled about she has the abortion in the pleroma or the eternal realm and then doesn't she creates like a cloud like oh shit you know like uh mm -hmm. i don't want to sound crude but yeah like some uh, high school girl at prom having an abortion in the bathroom i know it sounds crude but this is hard language that they were using and she's hiding this creature and then she goes out of the eternal realm and then yaldabaoth turns around and goes no mom I'm taking it. And she Yaldabaoth takes all her power mm. or part of her power and decides he's going to create the universe. And then comes mm -hmm. the saga. And then she has to, and in, in the story, she always repents and she has to create sort of a rescue operation with the universe to redeem the universe because her son has taken much of her power. Which you mentioned, uh, and I think is very important, is that in these myths she is the protagonist she is the female hero and how often perhaps. do you have a yeah or anti-hero how often do you have a story a myth where the female figure is especially a spiritual story we're dealing here with uh sacred traditions a sacred tradition where she plays this primordial role. And as you said, she's very much a, an image of the soul, of, of our soul, mm -hmm. uh, in need of redemption. And, and I see that uh, th that might cause her to be viewed negatively as a hero, that, that, that she needs someone else, perhaps, to save her. But still, the idea is there that her descent and then her her rising again is our experience mm -hmm. that, that we uh, can identify with her story because it's our story at the same time and we're in the same situation as her somehow you know in in that dream realm of the myth that's being told to us so uh, I I believe that Gnosticism is unique that way that uh, you you can have this female protagonist who is symbolic of the soul journey through this dark night of the soul, and then its eventual journey towards the light.
Yeah, and it should be mentioned uh, the great lesson too is she she can't do it alone. She needs help, like we all do. Our souls aren't going to redeem themselves. Sorry, people. We got to take. We got to do the work. Get the help. And she gets help not just in some stories from Jesus, but she gets stories from her higher self, the bar below or the the Enoya, whatever. It's a, it's a group exercise, and they work together to. Uh, to again redeem the universe. In fact, in the uh, trimorphic uh, Pretanoia, it's actually the bar below who has to come and save Jesus from the cross. So there's this sort of good teamwork between these aeons, these aspects of God. But yeah, I think uh, Sophia is still sort of the central heroine or even anti-heroine. She gets she gets kind of Machiavellian in some stories like the hypostasis of the archons and so forth. But again, wisdom is wisdom. That's how you get mm. the wisdom, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love also that uh, you do have the primordial story of, of how she separates from her consort, and yet mm. her consort then descends to be with her in the underworld, and together they can rise mm. again. So that uh, in the Valentinian tradition, and it's, I think it's true for most of Gnosticism, really. The, basically, sacred sex is a, a, an important rite within the Gnostic tradition and within many tantric traditions. Where, where And, uh, you know, the idea being that uh, through that rite, there is redemption. Through that rite, there is a, 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 a moment of... Uh, experiencing the higher realms and that they create the entire mythology around this idea that the two consorts must reunite in order for perfection and the you know the lower world to rise up and will actually be abolished and and for the two to enter into the higher world uh, of the pleroma as it's called the fullness the the realm of the one and the one being of course a unity of opposites of all opposites including the gender opposites so there you are well yeah. said indeed no i mean as i as i get older i find that the the gnostic texts they they have such a variety that uh in a way those uh what were they 52 different tractates that we discovered in nag hammadi they're so various, and yet they they like puzzle pieces that come together in unexpected ways. And there's always new ways to put those pieces of the puzzle together and kind of go aha, you know, and have those aha moments, those insights, those those um, koans, epiphanies. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they're like koans in that sense. Yeah, it's an experience, and yeah, the ancient Greeks were lovers of Sophia. They thought if we can get Sophia, we can make a much better universe, restore the universe. So the quest continues, and hopefully Sophia is returning in some way or another in these days when we need her more than ever. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our AB Live with Lawrence Caruana. The mystic intensity continues in our second part. As a bonus for Patreon patrons, Red Circle subscribers, and AB Prime members, as I said in the intro, I'll include my interview with Lawrence on his book, Enter the Image, 
where he discusses the mystic nexus of art, myth, and mysticism. Don't miss it, as you'll find useful meditative and spiritual plugins to your practices. Yes, heresy is really so much damn fun. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon or Red Circle that works in the podcast provider of your choice. Check it out in the show notes. So please become a member or Patreon or Red Circle subscriber for the full audio interview and to support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Go to thegodabovegod.com for means to assist and get the infernal rewards. Or just contact me. Whether it's Patreon or AB Prime or Red Circle, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever might be the only way to truly help Sophia with a rescue operation here in the Black Iron Prison. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.